0: And open with me to the book of Hebrews as we enter into chapter 5. It's on page 1190 of your Red Pew Bible. It's interesting how, uh, I know I've mentioned this before, how you can live in such a beautiful place like Acadia, such a spectacular uh, national park, uh, so pristine in, in so many different ways, and you can lose sight of it. I drive through it daily, and I don't uh, appreciate it like I did on you know on the sabbatical when I was going intentionally to the national parks. You kind of notice the the spectacular, and and here we drive by it every day. Uh, I was. Reminded of that a couple of weeks ago when Avonlea and I went into New York and uh, New York is a spectacular place. You know, we went to the Empire State Building and, you know, I w- at least I was walking up and, and looking up and just noticing the, the amazing um, architecture and everybody else was just kind of going their own way and not even noticing it. When we got to the top, I imagine... Uh, there was nobody at the top that was from manhattan i I'm to guess, but that's it looked like that at least. probably happens in Paris with the eiffel tower you know we we intentionally spend thousands of dollars to go and see that and be in paris and and the Parisians probably don't even look up when they go by it. You know, I was thinking of this when uh, I went home last time, and a good friend of mine just bought a new uh Tesla Model 3, and he took me for a ride in it. And I'm like, this is just unbelievable, wholly different. You know, it looks like a spaceship in there. And uh, I'm sure that in a couple months that he'll be getting in and out of that car as if he was getting in and out of his old car. We, we tend to lose the notice of the spectacular in our life. And that's probably what happened with the high priest in Israel, too. When Moses' brother Aaron came out dressed as the high priest for the first time, it must have been spectacular. I found this picture on the internet and it pretty much uh, codifies what it was like to dress as the high priest. It was a stunning sight wearing bright white and deep blue tunics when everyone else is wearing tan and browns. Over those tunics he wore an apron-like ephod, woven of finely twisted blue and purple and scarlet threads. Around the skirt was attached finely crafted little bells that, that jingled with every movement the high priest made. On his shoulders were two large black onyx stones, one on each shoulder, and engraved In those onyx stones were the names of six of the tribes of Israel, one on his left and one on his right. Fastened in front by gold chains was was a breastplate, nine inches square, with twelve precious stones, each different, embedded in it. And inscribed on each stone was a name of the tribe of Israel, meant to remind the high priest to keep the The people of God close to his heart. Lastly, he was crowned with a turban of fine linen, and from the front of that hung a gold plate on his forehead with the words, Holy unto the Lord. When he came out, it must have been spectacular. I'm sure as the years went on and as the centuries wore on, when the high priest came out, it wasn't quite as noticeable. It wasn't quite as spectacular. He almost went unnoticed day by day. But the author of Hebrews here wants us to notice this high priest once again. He wants to bring the high priest back into focus as he prepares to explain Jesus as the fulfillment of this high priest. So the next six chapters, we're going to... He's going to unpack for us how this is so, beginning right here. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter, 10, chapter uh, 5, verse 10. So in verse 14 of chapter 4, we read in God's Word, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest was chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Jesus did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open up this text for me and for, for your dear children here, sitting eagerly, wanting to know more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the next six chapters, the author wants to make the case for Jesus being the fulfillment of the high priest. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, the author shows how Jesus' sacrifice is superior. But starting here, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the author wants wants to make very perfectly clear that Jesus is qualified to be that high priest. So in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, he lays out three qualifications of being high priest. And then, in verses 5 through 10, he explains how Jesus fulfills those qualifications. So, if we look at verses 1 through 4, we see the first of these qualifications. The high priest had to be appointed. The high priest had to be appointed. Look at the words used in verse 1. For every high priest was chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And then drop down to to verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So you have those words chosen and appointed and called by God. In other words, the high priest was chosen by God. The high priest didn't appoint himself nor did, did men appoint him. God appointed the high priest. If you go back to in Exodus in 28 and 29 chapters and in Leviticus 9 and 10, you can see there and learn for yourself that Yahweh himself chose Aaron and his lineage to be the priestly lineage. God alone can chose who can mediate between himself and and man just as in a courtroom today if you if you go in a courtroom today you just can't stand up and speak lawyers just can't stand up and speak anytime they want they have to be recognized by the judge be given permission to speak in his courtroom and so it is in the courtroom if you will of god and if you in a Earthly courtroom, if you presume to speak without being called on, you can be held in contempt of court. You can be punished for that. And that's what we see happening from time to time in Scripture. Even in our time in in, in 1 Samuel, we're just starting a study of that back in Sunday school, you'll see that Saul presumed to take on the role of high priest in chapter 13. And the kingdom was ripped away from him because of that. Or you see in, in Korah's rebellion where, where Korah and Dathan and Abiram in number 16, they, they wanted to democratize the, the priesthood and said, who are you to be priests over us? And you remember what happened to them. The earth opened up and swallowed that rebellion. Remember what happened to King Uzziah in Second Chronicles twenty six, when he presumed to go in to do the priestly role of lighting the incense, leprosy broke out on his head. And he was he was unable for the rest of his life to go into the temple and worship because of that leprosy. Kent Hughes wrote, no priest ever appointed himself to the high priestly office. All were divinely chosen. Therefore, a proper priest was filled with deep humility. His work was never a career. It was a calling. I mean, That, that same calling is what brought me here 16 years ago. It's not a career. It's a calling. It's the same thing that... that by God's grace, we will be able to instill in this intern that we're going to bring on. That that this isn't a career he's coming up to. It's a calling by God to come up here and pastor a church in Maine and stay. Yahweh alone chose who ministered before him. And the author wants his readers to see very clearly that even Jesus did not presume the office even jesus did not assume the office himself look with me at verses five and six the author says very clearly there so also christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest but was appointed by him who said and these are god's words you are my son today i've begotten you as he says in another place you are a priest forever in the order of melchizedek if you look down at verse 10, he he builds on that and says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. God the Father appointed Jesus. The author goes to the Old Testament to show this. He goes to to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 that the Jews would instantly recognize as messianic psalms. The author wants to remind his readers that Jesus, it was always a plan for Jesus to be Psalm 2, the fulfillment of the king, and Psalm 110, the fulfillment of the high priest. The Jews knew that the lineage of the king would come from David, so it must have come as quite a shock, like a bombshell, that they read about Melchizedek here. It's the only place he's mentioned in the New Testament is here in the book of Hebrews must have surprised them because they they would have thought, okay, King David's lineage, I get that, Psalm 2. But Melchizedek, why not Aaron? Aaron, that's the lineage he should come from. Not through this mysterious Melchizedek that we see, just for a few short verses in chapter 14 of Genesis. The author is going to go on to unpack this more fully in chapter 7, But in short, what the author is saying here is Jesus' high priesthood is greater than Aaron's. Just as Melchizedek had no beginning and end, so Jesus has this eternal priesthood. Whereas all of Aaron's descendants had an end to their high priesthood, Jesus has no end. Whereas the priesthood of Aaron ceased being even in operation in 70 A.D., Jesus' priesthood goes on for us. He continues to intercede for us, as we'll later learn. His lineage lineages no longer need to be kept. You'll notice right after the Gospels are written, no more lineages are kept. Sacrifices for the people are no longer to be given. The temple does not have to be rebuilt. second qualification for being high priest is to be human. The high priest had to be a human. Chosen from among men, it says in verse 1. From among men. Whereas the prophets were to be God's representatives to man, the high priest was to be man's representative to God. And to represent perfectly, to act on behalf of men, He had to share in their humanity. The high priest had to be human. It might seem silly to say that, but it couldn't be an angel. It couldn't be a celestial being. They couldn't look to those. The the author of Hebrews has already said that Jesus is so much superior to the angels in chapter 1. He had to be 100% human if he was going to represent humanity. If he was going to represent you. If he was going to represent me before God the Father. He had to be human. And the author turns to, to verse 7 to clearly indicate this, to give some evidence to this. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his rever- reverence. It says right there, In the days of his flesh, Through Jesus' incarnation, Jesus fulfills this. Jesus needed to become human in order to represent humanity. The author of Hebrews is careful here and, and explicit here. Jesus became fully human in the incarnation. That's what we proclaim once a month here at this church through the Apostles' Creed, don't we? It's one of the the tenets of our faith. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's what we say over and over and over. Christians have said that over and over and over again. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. Anyone who believes that gospel is saved. Not because because Jesus can perfectly substitute for you being human. Not a bull, not a goat, not a pigeon. He was human. And the, and the New Testament consistently makes a big deal out of his humanity. You stumble over it again and again. In Philippians, that great creed of the early church that is embedded in our scriptures says, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself absolutely nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus was 100% human. Our confession today, out of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God and the Word became flesh over and over and over again. His humanity is even a, a true test of, of salvation, according to 1 John 4.2. He writes there, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. To test the spirits through that you're to test teachers. Are they false teachers? Through that grid. By that litmus test. And in verse 8, the author gives more evidence for Jesus' humanity. He says he learned obedience. Learned obedience through his suffering. Like you and like me, Jesus... In his full humanity learned. How's that possible? I thought he was God. Yeah. But he's also fully human. There are two types of suffering that comes as a consequence of God's commands. There's there's suffering that comes as a consequence to disobedience, isn't there? We all know that. That's how most of us learn obedience. It's by the consequences of the disobedience we learn, oh, I should obey. But there is also a suffering that comes as a consequence of obedience. And sometimes we get a glimpse into that. And this is what the author of the Hebrews is getting at. You and I sometimes, when we are obedient to God's call, when we, when we live righteously in an unrighteous world, there will be consequences to that. When you share your faith with somebody you're taking a risk on that relationship aren't you Every time you share your faith and and by your obedience a consequence might be that that friend kind of starts not wanting to be around you anymore That'd be a consequence of obedience Much of the time, this is how we learn obedience. God commands one thing, we do it, we feel the consequences. We learn obedience that way. That is how Jesus learned obedience. He never sinned. That's what our our text says up in chapter 4. If he had sinned, he wouldn't be qualified to be our high priest. He would not have have learned perfect righteousness. John Stott says this, we learn to be obedient because of the unpleasant consequences which follow disobedience. It is not so with Jesus, he writes. He learned obedience by the sufferings that came his way as a result of his obedience. As a result of Jesus' full obedience, the people that that should have recognized him, the Pharisees, who knew the scriptures the most, hated him. Because of his obedience, the people that that should have loved him the most, his people, rejected him. His disciples who followed him, because of his obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane, going through that, fled at the end of there. He lost his dearest friends. And his perfect obedience to God ultimately led him to the cross. Jesus learned what obedience felt like. Jesus really learned. He humanly grasped. He was fully and truly human. That's that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. But there's a third qualification, and that is, he did not just be appointed and not just be human, but he, he also had to be a sympathetic high priest. That's, that's the, what we see in verse two. The author writes, he, meaning the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. The high priest was to be sympathetic towards sin and sinners. They were to be the people's pastor. They were to be the shepherd of the people. They were to deal gently with the ignorant. And that meant that they didn't roll their eyes when new believer Joseph sinned because he didn't know it was sin. He should never get frustrated and angry at a Jew that, that didn't know any better. You and I can understand that when we when we come and we listen to a sermon or we hear a teaching or a podcast and we go, oh my goodness, I didn't know what that meant. Wow. I didn't know that that was sin. The high priest was to be sympathetic toward not only the ignorant, but also to the wayward. And this is probably an even harder class of people. To be sympathetic to. You know, for people that don't know any better, for a little 18 months old, you don't expect them to know what a 10-year-old is. But when a person is 30 years old and they're continuing to do the same same sin, what the scripture here is saying is the high priest was never to get frustrated with them either. Never to get frustrated with a repentant sinner. Never. They should never look at a Jew making his way up to the temple and go, oh my goodness, here comes Joseph again with the bull, just like he did last week. Oh, no eye rolls. That's what the that's what the scripture's saying. No eye rolls for the high priest. He's to be a sympathetic high priest. He's to have that ephod next to his heart. And that shouldn't just be on the outside, it should be on the inside. The people should be on the inside. Qualification for high priest is that he has sympathy for the sheep. That his heart breaks for his people. That he isn't cold and distant and unfeeling and calloused. You know what? God ensured that the high priest would not become that way. Look at verse 3. Says, where is he supposed to draw this sympathy from? Well, because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. God wanted their sympathy to be rooted in the awareness of their own sin. Doesn't that sound familiar? He wanted them to know that they too were broken. They too were weak. They too were frail. They too were sinners in need of forgiveness. And that awareness should create a gentleness and a humility and a meekness. And that should be the same with us. That is what should create humility in me and in you is knowing that you are a sinner that needs forgiveness. This table is a weekly reminder of that that each of us desperately needs forgiveness that each of us desperately needs a savior that's what it means when we take the bread and the juice what you're declaring in in one sense when you take the bread you're saying i'm a sinner I'm frail, I'm weak, I can't do this. And when you take the juice saying, I need forgiveness for my sin. I'm desperate for Christ. This table should make us all sympathetic towards each other. Kent Hughes writes, When one is truly aware that they are a sinner and couples this with the interior awareness of their human weakness... This person will deal gently with others. Conversely, he writes, a harsh and judgmental, unsympathetic spirit is a telltale indication that one has outgrown his sense of weakness and his awareness of his own sin. It's an opportunity to take stock in yourself. Harshness in a believer's character is a telltale sign that you've forgotten the gospel. That the cross is very small in your life. That you're not very desperate for forgiveness of Christ. A believer that is judgmental has forgotten his basic need. A believer that rolls their eyes towards a sinner has started to think of themselves more highly than they ought. For frailty gives birth to sympathy. And praise God, we have a Savior that understands that far deeper than we do. He knows what it's like to be humanly frail. He understands what human weakness is to its fullest extent. We talked about this a little last week when we talked about verse 15 in chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we see this temptation, this, the fullness of this, in verse 7, when the author is, is unpacking the Garden of Gethsemane there for us. Did you notice that in verse 7? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Here the author gives us a snapshot of Gethsemane. You can go back this week and read about Gethsemane in, in a couple of the Gospels, but in Mark chapter 14, we see him struggling in the garden. You know the story. He gets there and and he takes Peter, James, and John aside and he says, come and, and pray with me. I need you guys. I can't do this night without you. And he takes them and he leaves them and says, pray for me. And he goes and he falls down on his face, it says, and prays. And here the author fills in a little of the gaps. In Mark, we find out that he is praying so fervently that he's sweating blood. Here we learn that he, with loud cries and tears, here we get a peek into the human emotion of those prayers. Jesus was staring right into the hell of the cross and wept and shouted prayers to God the Father that this cup If you know anything about Semitic culture, you know that they do shout and wail. That's what's going on there. As I was picturing it this week, I see him waking Peter, James, and John up repeatedly as we find that they fall asleep. And my picture of Jesus is with his long hair sticking to his tear and and dirt-caked face because he's face down his eyes puffy and red from praying, I mean from, pray, from crying, his throat raw from his groans and his shouts. That's the picture I have in my mind of my Savior, the frailty of my Savior. And that helps me understand that he can sympathize with me. So you have to know that when you go to Christ, he doesn't roll his eyes. Ever. Ever. He has that sympathetic resonance that we were talking about last week. You know? My heart hurts. His heart hurts. When you go through your Gethsemanes, and you will, he gets it. He really knows what it's like. He has you close to his heart. Because he's your high priest. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much. Thank you for sending your son. And for you, Jesus, being willing to go through what you went through for us. My goodness, it just keeps getting deeper and more amazing as we spend time with you in scripture now lord as we come to the, your table we ask you to continue to give us a wonderful picture of your gospel in jesus name amen let's take a